0: Hello and welcome to the 80s movie podcast. I'm your host Edward Havens. Thank you for listening today. On this episode, we're going to talk about 80s author Bret Easton Ellis and his 1985 novel Less Than Zero, the literal polar opposite of last week's subject, Jay McInerney, and his 1984 novel Bright Lights Big City. As I mentioned last week, McInerney was 29 when he published Bright Lights Big City. What I forgot to mention was that he was born and raised in Hartford, Connecticut halfway between Boston and New York City, and he would be part of that elite East Coast community that befits the upper-class child of a corporate executive. Brett Easton Ellis was born and raised in Los Angeles. His father was a property developer, and his parents would divorce when he was 18. He would attend high school at the Buckley School, a college prep school in nearby Sherman Oaks, where other famous alumni include a who's who of modern pop culture history, including Paul Thomas Anderson, Tucker Carlson, Laura Dern, Paris Hilton, Kim Kardashian, Alyssa Milano, Matthew Perry, and Nicole Ritchie. So they both grew up fairly well off, and they both would attend Tony Colleges in New England. Ellis would attend Bennington College in Vermont, a private liberal arts college whose alumni include fellow writers Jonathan Latham and Donna Tart, who would both graduate from Bennington the same year as Ellis. 1986. While still attending the Buckley School, the then 16 year old Ellis would start writing the book that he would call Less Than Zero after the Elvis Costello song. The story would follow a protagonist not unlike Bret Easton Ellis and his adventures through a high school not unlike Buckley. And unlike the final product, Ellis's first draft of Less Than Zero wore its heart on its sleeve and was written in the second person. Ellis would do a couple of rewrites of the novel during his final years at Buckley. And his first years at Bennington, until his creative writing professor, true crime novelist Joe McGinnis, suggested to the young writer that he revert the story back to the first person, which Ellis was at first hesitant to do. But once he did start to rewrite the story as a traditional novel, everything seemed to click. Ellis would have his book finished by the end of the school year, and McGinnis was so impressed with the final product that he would submit it to his own agent to send out to publishers. Brad Easton Ellis was only a second-year student at the time. And because timing is everything in life, Less Than Zero was being submitted to publishers just as Bright Lights Big City was tearing up the bestseller charts, and the publisher Simon and Schuster would purchase the rights to the book for $5,000. When Less Than Zero was published in June of 1985, Ellis had just finished his third year at Bennington. He was only 21 years and 3 months old. Oh, also, Before the book was published, the film producer Marvin Worth, whose credits included Bob Fosse's 1974 docudrama about Lenny Bruce starring Dustin Hoffman, and 1979's musical drama The Rose, Bette Midler's breakthrough film as an actress, and the 1983 Dudley Moore comedy Unfaithful Yours, would purchase the rights to make the novel into a movie for $7,500. The film would be produced at 20th Century Fox under the supervision of the studio's then Vice President of Production, Scott Rudin. The book would become a success upon its release, with young readers gravitating towards Clay and his aimless meandering tour of the rich and decadent young adults in Los Angeles, Circa, Christmas 1984, bouncing through parties and conversations and sex and drugs and shopping malls. One of those readers who became obsessed with the book was a then-17-year-old Los Angeles native who had just returned to the city after three years of high school in Northern California me. I read Less Than Zero easily three times that summer, enraptured not only with Ellis's minimalist prose, but with Clay specifically. Although I was neither bisexual nor a user of drugs, Clay was the closest thing I'd ever seen to myself in a book before. I had kept touch with my school friends from junior high in Los Angeles when I lived in Santa Cruz, and I found myself to have drifted far away from them during my time away from them. And when I went back to Santa Cruz shortly after Christmas in 1985, I had a similar feeling of isolation from a number of my friends there, not six months after leaving high school. I also love how Ellis threw in a number of then-current Los Angeles-specific references, including two mentions of KROQ DJ Richard Blade, who was the coolest guy in radio on the planet. And thanks to SiriusXM and its first-wave channel today, I can still listen to Richard Blade almost daily. But now from wherever I might be in the world. But I digress. My bond with Less Than Zero only deepened the next time I read it in early 1986. One of the things I used to do as a young would-be screenwriter living in Los Angeles was to try and write an adaptation of novels when I wasn't going to school, going to movies, or working as a file clerk at a law firm. But the one book I could not adapt for the life of me was Less Than Zero. Sure, there was a story there but its episodic nature made it difficult to create a coherent storyline. Fox felt the same way, so they would hire Michael Christopher, a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright, to do the first draft of the script. Christopher had just finished writing the adaptation of John Updike's The Witches of Eastwick that Mad Max director George Miller was about to direct, and he would do a literal adaptation of Ellis' book, with all the drugs and sex and violence except for a slight rehabilitation of the lead character's sexuality because although this was still the 1980s, with one part of the nation dramatically shifting its perspective on many types of sexuality, it was still Ronald Reagan's 1980s America. And maybe it wasn't a good idea to have a lead character be openly bisexual in a major studio motion picture at that time. Christopher would complete his first draft of the script in just one month, and producer Marvin Worth really loved it. Problem was, the Fox executives hated it. In a November 18, 1987 New York Times article about the adaptation, Worth would tell writer Al Jean Harmet so that he had thought Christopher's script was highly commercial because, quote, It had something gripping to say about the dilemma of a generation to whom nothing matters, unquote. Which, as someone who had just turned 20 years old, eight days after the movie's release and four days before this article came out, I absolutely disagree with this assessment. My generation cared about a great many things at the time. We cared about human rights. We cared about ending apartheid. We cared about ending AIDS and what was happening politically and economically. Yeah, we also cared about puffy jean jackets and neon-colored clothes and other nonsensical things to take our minds off all the other junk we were dealing with. But it would be a typical of a 40-something screenwriter and a 50-something producer to think we didn't give a damn about anything. But again, I digress. Worth and the studio would agree on one thing. It wasn't really a drug film, but about young people being destroyed by the privilege of having everything you ever wanted available to you. But the studio would want the movie version of the book to be a bit more sanitized for mainstream consumption. So, goodbye Marvin Worth. Hello, John Avnet. In 1986, John Abnett was mostly a producer of low budget films for television with titles like Between Two Women and Calendar Girl Murders. But he had struck gold in 1983 with a lower budgeted studio movie with a first time director and a little known lead actor. That movie was risky business and it made that little known lead actor, Tom Cruise, a bona fide star. Abnett, wanting to make the move out of television and onto the big screen, would hire Harley Payton a former script reader for former Columbia Pictures and MGM-UA head David Beagleman, who you might remember from several of our previous episodes, and six-time Oscar-nominated producer-screenwriter Ernest Lehman. Peyton would spend weeks in Avnet's office, poring over every page of the book, deciding what to keep, what to toss, and what to change. Two of the first things to go were the screening of a quote-unquote snuff film on the beach and a scene where a 12-year-old girl is tied to a bedpost and raped by one of the main characters. Julian would still hustle himself out to men for money to buy drugs, but Clay would be a committed heterosexual. Casting on the film would see many of Hollywood's leading younger male actors looked at for Clay, including a 23-year-old recent transplant from Oklahoma, looking not only for his first leading role, but his first speaking role on screen, Brad Pitt. The producers would instead go with 24-year-old actor Andrew McCarthy, an amiable enough actor who had already made a name for himself with such films as St. Elmo's Fire and Pretty in Pink, and who would have another hit film in Mannequin between being cast as Clay and the start of production. For Blair, they would cast Jamie Kurtz, who had spent years on the cusp of stardom between her co-starring role as Muffy Tepperman on the iconic 1982 CBS series Square Pegs to movies such as Quicksilver and Crossroads that were expected to be bigger than they ended up being. The ace up her sleeve was the upcoming vampire horror comedy film The Lost Boys, which Warner Brothers was so certain was going to be a huge hit they would actually move it away from its original spring 1987 release date to a prime mid-July release. The third point in the triangle, Julian, would see Robert Downey Jr. get cast. Today, it's hard to understand just how not famous Downey was at the time. He had been a featured in movies like Weird Science and Tough Turf and spent a year as a not ready for primetime player on what most people agree was the single worst season of Saturday Night Live. But his star was starting to rise. What the producers did not know and Downey did not elaborate on was that, like Julian, Downey was falling down a spiral of drug use which would make his performance more method-like than anyone could have guessed. The Red Hot Chili Peppers, who were still hot on the Los Angeles music scene, but were still a couple years away from the release of their breakout album, 1989's Mother's Milk, were cast to play a band in one of the party scenes. And additional cast members would include James Spader and Lisa Ann Falk, who would become semi-famous two years later as one of the Heathers. Impressed with a 1984 British historical drama called Another Country, featuring Colin Firth, Cary Elwes, and Rupert Everett, AFNET would hire that film's 35-year-old director, Merrick Kenevska, to make his American directing debut. But Konefska would be in for a major culture shock when he learned just how different the American studio system was to the British production system. Shooting on the film is set to begin in Los Angeles on May 6, 1987, and the film was already scheduled to open in theaters barely six months later. One major element that would help keep the movie moving along was cinematographer Ed Lachman. Lockman had been working as a cinematographer for nearly 15 years and had shot movies like Jonathan Demme's Last Embrace, Susan Seidelman's Desperately Seeking Susan, and David Byrne's True Stories. Lachman knew how to keep things on track for a lower-budgeted movie, And at only $8 million, less than zero, was the second lowest-budgeted film for 20th Century Fox for the entire year. Not that having a lower budget was going to stop Konefska and Lackman from trying to make the best film they could. They would stage the film in the garish neon lighting the 80s would be best known for, with cool flares like lighting a pool sky discussion between Clay and Julian, where the ripples of the water and the underwater lights create an effect on the characters' faces, that highlighted Julian's literal drowning in his problems. There's also one very awesome shot where Clay's convertible parked in the middle of the street with its top down, as we see Clay and Blair making out, while scores of motorcycles loudly pass by them on either side. And then there's a steady cam shot during a party scene featuring the Chili Peppers, which is supposed to be out of this world, but it's likely we'll never see it. Once the film was finished shooting and Konefska turned in his assembly cut, the studio was not happy with the film. It was edgier than they wanted, and they had a problem with that party scene with the Peppers, specifically that the band was jumping around on screen, extremely sweaty, without their shirts on. It also didn't help that Larry Gordon, the president of Fox, who had approved the purchase of the book, had been let go before production on the film began, and his replacement, Alan Horn, who did give the final go-ahead on the film, had also been summarily dismissed. His replacement, Leonard Goldberg, really hated the material, thought it was distasteful, but Barry Diller, the chairman of the studio, was still a supporter of the project. And during all this studio infighting, the director had been released from the film before any test screenings. Test screenings had really become a part of the studio modus operandi in the 1980s, and Fox would often hold their test screenings on the Fox studio lot in Century City. There are several screening rooms on the Fox lot, from the 53-seat William Fox Theater to the 476-seat Daryl Zanuck Theater. Most of the less-than-zero test screenings would be held in the 120-seat Little Theater. So that audience reactions would be easier to gauge, and should they want to keep some of the audience over for a post-screening Q&A, it would be easier to recruit 8 or 10 audience members. That first test screening did not go over well. Even though the screening room was filled with young people between the ages of 15 and 24, many of them recruited from nearby malls like the Century City Mall and the Beverly Center, based off a stated liking of Andrew McCarthy, They really didn't like Jamie Gertz's character, and they really hated Robert Downey Jr.'s character. Several of the harder scenes of drug use with their characters would be toned down, either through judicious editing or new scenes being shot, such as when Blair is seen dumping her cocaine into a bathroom sink, which was filmed without a director by the cinematographer Ed Lockman. They'd also shoot a flashback scene to the trio's high school graduation, meant to show them in happier times but only a single still from that shoot would be used to close the film. The film would be completed three weeks before its November 6th release date, and Fox would book the film into 871 theaters, going up against no less than seven other new movies, including a Shelley Long comedy, Hello Again, the fourth entry in the Death Wish series, yet another John Cryer high school movie called Hiding Out, a weird Patrick Swayze sci-fi movie called Steel Dawn, a relatively tame fantasy romance film from Alan Rudolph called Made in Heaven, and a movie called Ruskies, which starred a very young Joaquin Phoenix when he was still known as Leaf Phoenix, while also contending with movies like Baelow Attraction, Baby Boom, and Dirty Dancing, which were all still doing very well two to four months in theaters. The reviews for the film were mostly bad. If there were any saving graces, critically, it would be the praise heaped upon Downey for his raw performance as a drug addict. But of course, no one really knew he was actually a drug addict at the time. The film would open in fourth place with 3.01 million dollars in ticket sales, less than half of what Fatal Attraction grossed that weekend in its eighth week of release, and the following week's drops would be swift and merciless. Down 36 percent in its second week, another. 41% in its third week, and had one of the worst drops in its fourth week, the four day Thanksgiving holiday weekend when many movies were up in ticket sales. By early December, the film was mostly playing in dollar houses, and by the first of the year, Fox had already stopped tracking it, with slightly less than $12.4 million in tickets sold. As of the writing of this episode at the end of November 2022, you cannot find less than zero streaming anywhere. Although, if you do want to see it online, it's not that hard to find. But it has been available for streaming in the past on sites like Amazon Prime and the Roku channel, so hopefully it will find its way back into streaming in the future. Or you can find a copy of the 21-year-old DVD on Amazon. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again real soon when our final episode of 2022, episode 96 on Michael Jackson's Thriller, is released. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website, the80smoviepodcast.com, for extra materials about Less Than Zero, the movie and the novel, and its author, Freddy Stanellis. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.